Hey guys, today we'll be talking to Pradeep Banawara. He's the only person I know who's been part of different startup ecosystems across the globe. He's relocated to different countries for this finding the right product fit. I first met him when he was CTO in residence at Microsoft Accelerator and I if I remember it right it was around 8 to 9 years ago. Currently he's working as a principal architect at Aerospike here in Bangalore. Let's hear what he has to say. What is principal architect? What does principal mean? We are a global company, right? We have offices everywhere. So our, what should I say? Our designations and titles are all driven from, from Bay Area. But I don't think there is... So in a lot of startups you have, or in a lot of established companies, you have this ladder, career ladder, so to speak. Yeah, okay. where you have a software engineer or L, L4, L5, and then you move up right. from there. We as a startup, we don't have that kind of a career ladder, like that formally set up. But the seniority of someone is designated by their title. So that's how it works. Wow. That's where it is. What does Aerospike do? A distributed NoSQL data store. So okay. we are... So if you look at... NoSQL databases, right? Uh, the, uh-huh. Some of the, essentially, what is a NoSQL database? NoSQL database is an alternative to traditional relational data stores that have been in vogue since the 70s. Uh, so the NoSQL paradigm started maybe 20 years back. They, they brought in this flexibility into building applications wherein you don't really have to essentially establish relations between data aspects in your application. So you could essentially take an application and use the application data structures, application constructs, and then build a very flexible data model, also known as a schema-less kind of architecture, where you don't have to decide the schema before itself, before you embark on building an application. Now things are slowly changing, but yeah, that's what we do. We are a NoSQL database, and in the NoSQL database, you have different types. You have databases where you can just store a big uh, table, right? Which is essentially what the Google Big Table family is. You can model your data as a large table uh, that can be distributed across data centers, across nodes, which will scale horizontally. That's one family of NoSQL data source. The second family of NoSQL data source is what is known as a key value data store, which is essentially a distributed hash map. If you uh, know what a hash map is in the programming paradigm, a hash map is nothing yeah. but a key that maps to a value, right? So that's what we are. Right. We are a distributed hash map, persistent. So we persist on the disk, on SSD specifically. So our, if you look at hash map, uh, the reasons why you use a hash map is when you need very fast look very fast lookup. One, if I remember it right. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's big off one. There are hash map implementations where the worst case can go to a logarithmic time. But yeah, on, on an average, it's like big off one. So very fast access. So that's what we are. Essentially, in a hash map, you get very fast access on one machine. With Aerospike, you get similar kind of performance on a distributed set of machines, on a distributed cluster. Okay, makes sense. So now, uh, specifically talking about your mobile app development, you started building apps like eight to nine years ago, before even the Android Studio was launched, if I'm right? 
Yes. So my first foray into mobile app development was in 2012, which was Android 2.2, I think, or 2.1. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right now the tools are quite advanced and you have the studio, Android Studio, you have the sophisticated libraries helping you build apps quite easily. But during that time, it must have been tough. I think it was, it's, you're more in a discovery phase during the initial inception of any technology. Yeah, right. you're right. What probably takes 10 minutes today took maybe three or four hours back then. But that's just the nature of things. Things were still in a very nascent stage, at least in the Android world. iOS world, I still didn't have any visibility into the iOS world at that point of time, so I can't comment on that. But in the Android world, yeah, we pretty much, I, I think it took me nearly a day to just set up Eclipse. And you started off building location-based apps back then. That's right. So we wanted to build to Google directions or the real-time traffic which okay. was not yet available on Google Maps in India at that time. So we wanted to clone Waze. So Google had just purchased Waze in 2011, I think, uh, 2010 or 2011, I don't remember when. So it was in, around that time frame when they had, they had acquired Waze and they were incorporating real-time traffic directions into, into Google Maps. And it was done in the rest of the world, more or less, but in India, it was not yet there. And yeah, that was our feeble attempt to clone ways in India. We, Gaurav and I did not really think about any other uh, acquisition or further sort of plans on right. what to do with it. We were like, hey man, this is something nice to do. And of course, we were also, we pitched this in Startup Weekend, the first Startup Weekend event in India, which was in Bangalore. And I don't remember, I think we were placed second or third. So, so that was some sort of, what do you call a morale boost? It's okay, you know, something we hatched in like over a weekend has some merit. So we should probably continue doing this. And then you joined Microsoft Accelerator, CTO and Residence. And yeah. So yeah, with, with Beatroud, we couldn't take it. We couldn't take it anywhere. Essentially after like about four or five months of working, we decided to not pursue the app path. And then I was, yeah, didn't know what else to do, just figuring the next steps out. And then, yeah, Mukun set up the accelerator and then he called me to help out with the technology related aspects in Microsoft Accelerator. Yeah, that right. was in yeah September or October, 2012, I think, yeah. Yeah, Started you with the yeah, you were shuttling between Bangalore and Hyderabad and that's when I met you in um, Hyderabad where I was running an incubator and I would right. parade certain startups and then you were there and and that's how we met for the, for the first time. Yep. All yep. right. That was yeah. in Hyderabad, yes. Yes, it was in Hyderabad. And later on, you started, you built another app. I met you again in Singapore and you were building a mobile app there also, if I remember it right. Yeah, Singapore, I was, I was funded by Entrepreneur First, which is a talent investing uh, fund. And I was iterating on multiple ideas. So that's how EF works. So essentially EF is you go there as a cohort of, of startup founders, and then you try to work with other founders, form a team, form a co-founding team, and then see if you can build out on an idea. Yeah, so I was iterating on mostly 
NLP and computer vision based ideas. Uh, that was what I wanted to do. And yeah, that's, okay. yeah, that's when we bumped into in Singapore, right? Back in 2016, yeah, I think. Yeah, 2016. Uh, so what I'm trying to get at is that you are passionate about building mobile applications. I think mobile was, okay, the next big thing, right? At that juncture in time. It was essentially, if you had to build anything which was future looking and where if you went back in 2012 and said, okay, what are people going to use most in the coming years? The, the writing was on the wall. It was mobile, whether it was iOS, Android, that was up in the air. But it was clearly the direction was headed in, in, in mobile, right? That was pretty much writing on the wall. If you're trying to build for the future, this is one of the access you focus on, which is what I did. Again, so building a mobile app is just not the mobile interface, right? You have a whole bunch of things that you need to orchestrate on the back end. The manifestation of a mobile app is on the phone, but the all the orchestration for the app to manifest on the phone happens in the back end, correct? There is a lot of, at least you have to put some thought into, okay, how am I going to uh, break down the interfaces on the phone and how am I going to essentially make these interfaces work from a backend, right? Now, somebody will ask, why do you need a backend? Why can't you just build everything on the phone given that the phone is so powerful, correct? Even, even back in 2012 or 2013, the phones were pretty powerful for their time. So that is, so there are two things to this. One is you could do everything on the phone, but then there is, when you think of refactoring and when you think of common functionalities that you need, they typically, have to reside at a location where these services can be shared across all the devices, right? So you invariably end up building a backend. And now the question of, okay, I have a backend. How do I, how do I increase or how do I make my phone perform better given that we have this backend, right? So how many APIs should I have? How many network calls should I make? What data should I keep on the phone versus what data should I keep on the backend? Where should I maintain the state? Should, should, I, should the state maintenance happen on the phone, happen on the backend? If it happens in the backend, where in the backend should the state be maintained? Should it be maintained in the database? Do you want it to be maintained in the applications? If you want to maintain state in the applications, how are you going to scale the applications? What do you mean by state? So state as in, so if you think of an interaction, correct? So in uh, typically in most of the apps, you are interacting with something, whether it right. is you're shopping, watching a movie, you're, you're essentially uh, interfacing with, with, with something. So now when you're interfacing with something, it is not always a continuous interface, correct? Even if you think of something like a movie that you're watching on your phone, it appears to be continuous, but it is not. So what should happen if I, for example, stop watching a movie, I pause the movie, right? Now that is the state, correct? I have paused the movie. Now what should happen now? Should I be able to maintain that I have paused the movie state on my phone or should it be done at the back end? So these are what I mean by state related questions, right? So whatever you are in the process of doing an action and that action is comprised of a certain set of discrete states. And 
you could be in any state at any given point of time. And how do you essentially make sure that if you are in state one, you seamlessly transition to state two without absolutely any hindrance or without even you knowing that you are transferring from state one to state two. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. You are at a particular stage and at every point and then you go to another state and uh, each state has its different parameters and you choose whether to store that particular information on the mobile or on the backend. Am I right? Yeah, every state has associated metadata with it. Now, the metadata is one part of the state. Now, how do you essentially transition from state one to state two? Correct. Now, Hmm. the transition logic, do you maintain in the state? Do you maintain it outside the state? If so, how do you maintain it? So how do you figure out that state one to state two transition uh, has to happen? So if it has to happen, uh, do you, there are, there are again various paradigms of doing this, right? You can say that each state is a self-aware object thing. It knows essentially what it needs to do and it will figure itself out. That's one paradigm of looking at it. Or the other paradigm is like a state is a dumb object. Uh, I'm going to have a central or a, or a central, some, some piece somewhere where the, the control resides, which decides from what this dumb object should transition to. So these are essentially two paradigms of looking at it, but that's what it boils down to ultimately. Right. Now, later on, when again I met you in Bangalore, you spoke about an building a particular mobile application where people could invest into US stocks sitting in India. Mm-hmm. And this happened three to two years ago. Mm-hmm. And oh, it was two years was, ago. Yeah, it was two years ago. It was a great idea. And people are doing it now. It was much ahead of its time then. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I won't call it much ahead of its time. That's that you're putting it kindly. It was done. Essentially, it was done in other geographies. See, the, the what I realized was that, again, this learning came to me with a lot of time. I, I, I spent a lot of time getting to this learning. What I realized was that building an application that, like the stock trading application, for example, it involves a ton of, regulatory work that you need to do uh, other than just the technology aspect of it. Building an app, making it work is fine. It's difficult, but it you have what is known as known bounds, correct? You, you know the unknowns, essentially. Whereas something like sitting in India and, and trying to broker a deal with a stock in the US and to make it work at scale, you need to be plugged into the uh, U.S. regulatory framework of exchanges, compliance, SEC, and all these things. And it's it's a brutally competitive market. And I don't, I I personally realize that I don't have the appetite for dealing with the regulatory framework in any shape or form. So without that, pursuing a path to build this kind of a stock trading application was like not going to work. Either I had to figure out a way to partner with somebody in the US, but again, partnering is only going to take you so far. Ultimately, you have to get into the trenches and you have to build these, what should I call, exchanges. You had had to essentially build Robinhood from scratch. 
And I don't think I have the appetite for that kind of an endeavor, which is why I not did not pursue that route. Okay. You've been part of the uh, ecosystem in India, Bangalore specifically, Singapore, the Valley, and Canada. Valley, not so you... much. Yeah, but, but not. Canada and London, yes. But yeah, you've been, you are, you see any massive difference that actually is a key element? Apart I do that. see. Yeah, I definitely do see differences. I think ultimately the differences boil down to risk appetite. In Asia, typically the risk appetite of uh, founders is, I would say, is fairly, is fairly low because in markets like Singapore, London, you still have a very cushy lifestyle with with the traditional, what should I say, career paths, like becoming a lawyer or becoming a doctor or going into investment banking. All these career options have a lot of upside in these respective geographies. I could say even Hong Kong. Right? And so, and, and these are relatively low risk, correct? Investment banking may be pretty high risk, but once you get into a groove in these career paths, you're essentially set for life. Like as a lawyer, if you graduate and then from a top school and then that's it, you're done. Uh, your, your future is set. So I think a lot of these factors play into how uh, people think of entrepreneurship. Of course, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who who have not gone into this mold, who have done great things in all geographies. So that I'm not even talking of these exceptional entrepreneurs. But I think on a whole, if you look at it, probably the appetite for risk changes from location to location. And also the, the appetite to take on, what should I say, risky technical endeavors is also, it also changes across geographies. At least that's what I've seen. So for example, in Singapore, people, founders are really passionate about a certain technology, let's say, and they are okay to put their heart, blood and soul into it. But that need not be in form of entrepreneurship. That could be in form of research. And that research could, if that research leads them to building companies, that's fine. But that is one, one dimension people look at. This is true of, this is true of London. This is true of Toronto as well. Like, People are laser focused about, okay, this is what the future I envision and I'm going to make it happen. And my research is the best possible way to make it happen. But as somebody sitting in Bangalore or somebody sitting in the Valley might think, okay, the same vision, I want to make the same thing happen, but I don't want to choose the research part. But here is like what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to raise some money and then I'm going to experiment. Uh, it will take more or less the same amount of time, but the, the outcome is very different. So that's something I've noticed. Other than that, I think I, I don't see too many like dramatic uh, changes or differences in, 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 in at least the ecosystems I've been in, in London, Singapore, and Toronto. But what I commonly see is like founders are, or at least people who want to make a step change are really passionate about what they do. And how they do it is very different across geographies. Okay, um, but do you see that when, when it comes to investors, their technical knowledge is quite limited in comparison 
to the guys at Bali, right? I or mean, maybe I Singapore. I wouldn't put it that way. So what? Here's my understanding, okay, right? Okay. Is that every investor is looking for returns on capital. Okay, that's what it boils down to. <clears throat> whether it is, however you invest your money, or every investor, whether it is you or me, or a venture capital investor, or a seed investor, early stage investor, they are looking for returns on capital. Okay. Now there is a difference in what the return should be and when that return should come. That expectation differs across geographies. Like for example, people in the valley have been investing when from like 1947, literally. Don Valentine started investing in somewhere in the 50s. That was probably the first investment he made. And when did Indian venture capitalists or other Asian venture capitalists start investing? Right? We started very late. That's one axis to look at. The other axis is traditionally Indian or Asian investors have invested in, have made their money investing in more or less predictable sources of investment. You make investment in real estate. You make investments in. i don't know gold or other instruments to some extent equities where your your predictability is predictability of success is like fairly high it's not as bad as startups so that also plays into that is the second axis so if you take these two axes and then say okay 10 years or 20 years back the the appetite for investors to invest in startups would have been fairly low but if you just come 10 years into the future if you come to like today's time that appetite has phenomenally increased today investors in india probably are on par with with global investors maybe not there yet but at least they are i i get the feeling that they are on par right going by the investments happening and it's also investing is also uh, what should i say there is some element of peer peer pressure into it as well so if you see someone else uh, making outsized returns betting on startups you are naturally inclined to think that hey what am i doing sitting with all this money deploying the capital in in assets where the returns are not so outsized that is one thing and there is also the question of uh, of of what should i say personal branding correct so you typically tend to get a higher personal brand value when you make a contrarian bet and that bet pans out right that also plays into role so all these things are slowly changing and slowly catching up so regardless of whether investors understand technology or not they are going to change with the changing times and money is going to flow into areas where people would not have thought of deploying their capital earlier that's the way i see it got it now i speak to a lot of startups and i also speak to a lot of investors the biggest problem these days everybody is saying is hiring mm-hmm. they are not able to find the right talent how are you dealing that aspect in your company i'm sure you know you'll be always looking out for good people but what is your process like and how does how do you manage to do it i i struggle as well i don't think i have any what should i say uh, i don't have a rosy path to hiring but what i what i at least strive to do and 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 uh, maybe this is this is applicable just to the way i work uh, 
is that so traditionally you hire when you hire you don't want false positives okay that's the that's a ground rule that everyone abides by so even if you are marginally good at something people will pass over you as a hire correct i wouldn't say marginally good even if you're good at something people will pass over you because they want to hire exceptional i'm not so bought into this exceptional hiring thing i think you can it's really hard to measure exceptional talent it's super hard regardless of what your interview process is you can fix some parameters and then say on these parameters i'm going to measure someone and then call them exceptional but time and again it has been proven that these parameters uh, are are not exactly the predictors of uh, exceptional performance they are to some extent but but it, it doesn't work all the time so i am okay to say that there are other parameters to determine whether someone is exceptional or not in in what they do and i focus on those parameters so i focus on parameters like how someone writes code when you give them a task to perform and uh, that kind of reveals what the person's thinking process or the what the engineer's thinking process is how do they how do they express for example how do they write comments when they are writing to when they are starting to write code or is writing comments an afterthought do they mm-hmm. start by thinking of the uh, end result and do they work backwards from there or do they just start uh, doing things and then somehow figure out what the end result is these are some of the basic parameters but there are other parameters that as you interview someone you can figure out uh, whether they are the predictors of exceptional performance and okay. i just focus on those that's that's about it you you take a look at their approach you mainly look at their approach how they solve the problem and how they think irrespective yeah. of yes and how they think and and essentially look at least in in startups right in startups and i, I have not worked in large organizations that much i have not done hiring in large organizations so in startups what you are looking for is can this guy or guy or girl can this person essentially take unconventional paths to solving something right because many times conventional paths might not fly might not work and at least somebody should be able to think outside the box and say okay this probably is not going to work this is what i should do that's what you are you are trying at least that's what i'm trying to look for uh, can this person think out of the box and solve something and again to measure this you don't have to give like a complex puzzle that nobody has ever come across in their lives and all that but even with like routine tasks you can figure this way out because there are 10 ways of doing a task and you want to find you want to look for someone who is thinking of the 11th way of doing it and i guess that's why people ask those questions right the challenging thing you have ever done or uh, what do you think is the most challenging thing you have ever done and it's just not coding it's just not solving a problem it's probably the regular things problems that come up in life yes those are pretty good i won't say they are the predictors or at least they are the parameters but at least it gives you an idea of what somebody has gone through in their past and all said and done what you do in your past is 
some sort of a predictor into what you can do in the, in the future. It is not the predictor, but it gives you some idea. Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay. Ma uh, makes sense. All right. Thank you, Pradeep. It's and if anybody has to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach out to you? LinkedIn? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. I can Google right. for Pradeep Banavara and then you'll, you'll find me on LinkedIn or it's P Banavara on Twitter. Thank you for your time, Pradeep. This was awesome, man. Thank you, Sriram. Thank you for hosting me and have a nice rest of the day.